You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with Ryan Cha to talk about his relatively unconventional investing strategy of renting by the room to college students. Ryan is a full-time pharmacist, side hustler, and real estate investor with four properties currently generating over $10,000 per month in rental income. In this episode, we learn about some of the mistakes Ryan has made, how to avoid those mistakes, why renting to college students doesn't have to be stressful, how to build systems in your real estate business, and how to manage your time so you can work full-time and still be a real estate investor. You'll also hear in this episode that this rent-by-the-room strategy, not necessarily to college students, but just rent-by-the-room strategy in general, is one that I've been studying quite a bit recently, and I've become quite interested in it. I'm curious, what do you guys think about this strategy? After you hear this episode and the one with Todd Baldwin back on episode 37, how do you feel about it? I'm curious to hear what you all think. Connect with me on Instagram. My username is the Robert Leonard, and let me know what you think. Now, without further delay, let's get right into today's episode with Ryan Cha. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investing Podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Ryan Chaw. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, how's it going, guys? I'm honored to be on the show. Let's start our conversation today by talking a bit about yourself. Tell us who you are and how you got to where you are today. I'm a pediatric pharmacist full-time, and I invest in real estate on the side. I was actually able to purchase one property each year by using a specific method of renting out per bedroom to college students. And I was able to, after four years of investing, buy four single-family homes with 18 tenants that makes $10,755 per month in rental income. I recently had Todd Baldwin on the show back on episode 37. And we also talked about the rent by the room strategy. I wanted to have you on the show today for a few reasons. One, because selfishly, this is a strategy that I've become very interested in since hearing Todd's story back on the Bigger Pockets podcast. And two, because your approach to rent by the room is a bit different than Todd's. You're focused on student rentals, whereas Todd was focused on more of a working professional profile. You're also operating in a state where a lot of people try to avoid investing in real estate due to recent laws being passed and different regulations that they have. So needless to say, we have a lot of different things that I think we could talk about today. When you first started getting into real estate, you made some mistakes that cost you over $30,000, which you say were avoidable. What were those mistakes and how can other new investors avoid them? So the first property I bought was in 2016. It was about a year after I started my first job as a pharmacist. I actually worked a lot of overtime and I put in six, seven days a week at my job to be able to buy my first rental as quickly as possible because I knew it required a lot of capital to get started or a good amount of capital to get started. And so I bought that property for $262,000 in my local college town. It was a three bed, two bath, and I was able to add an extra bedroom, which made an extra $620 per month. But before that, just to back up a little bit, the very first year of when I purchased the property, I had a lot of issues. So the first one was I got a call from one of my tenants around 11 p.m. at night on a weekend. And he was like, 
dude, there's a, there's a huge problem here. We got sewage coming out of the kitchen sink and it's overflowed and it's all over the kitchen floor right now. And so it smells. So I had to call a bunch of people up to see if I could get someone over there to sanitize the whole place. And then I had to get a plumber to check out what's going on with the pipes. So he found out after he stuck a camera down the pipe that it was a cast iron pipe, rusted over, had roots sticking into it, and the whole pipe had to be replaced. So it ended up costing me $9,000 to do that. Not only that, I had a, a vacancy for that first year because I didn't know how to advertise my place. I actually just put a for rent sign on the law and I was like, oh, that should be good, right? But no, I, I ended up with a, a vacancy that cost me about $5,200 because I had eight months of just not having a tenant in that room. So not only that, I had these problems with the AC. Actually, I didn't have an AC unit, so I had to install a new one, which cost me $18,000. And all in all, you know, adding up all the expenses, it cost me over $30,000. There are a couple of ways to, of course, avoid these mistakes. Uh, first off, don't buy a house that's 100 years old like I did. Just older houses just tend to have so many more problems, as you can tell. And then you could do a sewage line inspection during the inspection phase of the house or during the escrow phase of the house and use that as a negotiation point at the point of sale if you find any breaks in the pipe or something like that. So what made you want to focus specifically on student rentals? How were you able to use student rentals to avoid many of the downsides of investing in California? So actually, California is a very tenant-friendly state for sure. And I learned this actually, my grandpa, he bought a couple properties in the Bay Area in the 50s. And these were super cheap back then, obviously, before Silicon Valley even existed yet. And then they appreciated in price like crazy and were able to help him retire early. And not only that, he was able to help pay for part of our college education. So that's kind of like my inspiration for this. But he also had to deal with a lot of strict tenant laws, especially in San Francisco with the multifamily property that he bought. So I realized that a lot of the laws out there, especially in California, are directed toward multifamilies rather than single family homes. And because I purchase single family homes, I don't have to be capped by a lot of the, the laws like the rental increases and all that are capped on multifamilies. But single family homes and renting out per the bedroom, it's actually okay to have multiple leases, and as long as you check with the city that you're investing in, you're able to really maximize your profits by using this method. And in fact, I'm able to double my profits. If I check Zillow or Rentometer, how much rent I should be making, it's about $1,500 per month. I'm actually making around $2,700 to $3,100 per month per house. It's a really powerful method, rent by the room, and it can double your cash flow. So why students? You could rent by the room to anybody. You could do working professionals like Todd Baldwin does. You could do have no specific profile. You could just rent it to anybody. So why did you pick students? That's a great question because for me, actually, I saw my friend doing this in college. He lived in one of the rooms. He house hacked, right? So he basically lived for free because his roommates were paying for the mortgage. And so I was like, hey, I can do this, right? And I have connections to the school. I actually rent at the college that I went to pharmacy school at. And so I have those existing connections. I kind of knew a little bit about how to kind of advertise initially, although I, of course, had problems that first year. So then I, I perfected a system. I call it the prime system for vetting and finding high quality college students. So these are usually like third or fourth year college students, ones who are more mature. They got their party life out of the way. 
They're usually ones who are also professional students. So I target specifically like pharmacy students, dental students, medical students, people who are in the graduate school. So they have to do well on their midterms and finals or else they're not going to get their doctorate degree. So they're a lot more serious about their studies and a completely different tenant profile than, you know, someone, some freshman who kind of gets started in college and wants to have a party life or a party house, right? So how do you ensure that college students are going to be able to afford the rent and pay you consistently on time? So I have the prime uh, method. So P stands for, let's just kind of run down it because it'll definitely answer this question. P stands for placement of advertisements. So first you have to figure out where your target tenants hang out. If you advertise in a place where they're not even hanging out, then it's like fishing in an empty pond. So for me, I kind of go for Facebook groups. Craigslist is good too. And then I also have like, where do they hang up flyers on campus? I contact the student government, I contact the school and kind of see where can I place my ads. Uh, The second part is reviewing their social media. So this is very important to determine, are they a party type tenant or are they more studious type tenant who's going to focus on their studies? So I look for drugs, alcohol, raves, smoking, usually on their Facebook profile. And I kind of vet the tenant that way. I stands for identifying the type of tenant. So when you interact with them, are they constantly someone who asks for a cheaper deal? Are they difficult to communicate with? Do they get angry easily? Those are the kind of questions that I ask myself, like, what type of tenant is this? M stands for measuring responsiveness. And typically, the more responsive a tenant is, the more responsible they will be. So if you have a tenant that pays late rent, you want to ask them for the late rent, you don't want someone who's going to wait like two weeks to get back to you. You want someone who's going to get back to you right away. So obviously, the more responsive a tenant is when I'm communicating with them, when I'm vetting them, the more responsible they'll be down the line. And then the final part is E, of course, which stands for ensuring proof of income. Usually for me, I get the bank statements and the FICO score from the parents to make sure that the parents can afford the rent. Not only that, sometimes students take out student loans to pay for housing. And so you can get the student loan documents if they decide to use that to pay for rent. With the COVID-19 pandemic present in the US right now, this is an interesting time to be talking about this strategy, not necessarily rent by the room, but because of college. A lot of schools have sent students home and or they've gone virtual for the next few semesters at least. How has this impacted your student rental business? This actually did throw me through the ringer. I was fearful, of course, when my college closed down. I was like, oh, shoot, how am I going to get tenants, right? So what I had to do was, of course, beefed up my advertising. I contacted the student government and say, hey, can you maybe put up some flyers for for my rentals around the area? And I feel like it's a great choice for a lot of students because I'm actually very, very close to the school. And they said, yeah, sure. I'll actually email out to the whole pharmacy school list, the email list. And I was like, oh, cool. That's great. Uh, So they did that. They placed their flyers. I also, when I got in contact with a tenant or a prospective tenant, I would go on a one-on-one call with them and ask them, what are their concerns? What objections do they have? So I did a lot more marketing and I, having that call one-on-one with them, it adds that personal touch and that personal connection. So they're more likely to say, hey, this Ryan guy seems like a nice guy. You know, He's going to probably make a good landlord for me. I might as well stay at his place. So I'm proud to say, even though I did offer some discounts and all that to fit people's budgets, I was still able to rent out fully all of my bedrooms. And my revenue for 
fall semester per month is $9,230 per month, last time I checked. So yeah, I was able to make it work. And is that with your school being shut down? Yes, that is with the school being shut down, primarily online. For spring semester, though, they're looking at this hybrid system that they're going to use where half of it is online instruction and half of it is on campus. Why are students even renting a place from you if the school is shut down right now? That's a great question. So I asked this question to a lot of the tenants and they said, I ranged from just like, I just want to hang out with my friends, you know, be closer to the school, hang out with my friends and study together. It also was just, I wanted to get out of the house. You know, I couldn't focus at home with my parents. It was a very chaotic environment. So there's a lot of reasons why. Some of them actually do have to do, like I had a graduate research students that had to be on campus to do their research. I also had some students who did actually have some classes they had to take that was on campus. So outside of just the pandemic itself, there seems to be a broad trend of less high school graduates choosing to go to college and more colleges realizing that they can offer successful programs completely online. How do you see this long-term trend impacting your real estate investing model? Great question. This has to go do with a mindset, honestly, in my opinion. So if you let that fear that the market is trending this way dictate what your actions are going to be, then in the end, you're going to just be stuck in this place of analysis paralysis where you're not really making a decision. Or you make a decision out of fear, which is even worse. Usually, whenever I make a decision out of fear, I end up losing money. So for me, I'm not worried about it because this college campus, they have all this land they have to utilize. So they're not going to go completely remote or online. Two, the colleges have on-campus housing, which is a huge cash cow for them. So they're not going to just, all those dormitories that's on campus, they're not going to just say, hey guys, we're just going to go completely online, forget the college dorms, because they're going to lose a lot of money. The college that I invested in also has been around since 1858 or something like this, some crazy long amount of time. Of course, you have to be prepared for the worst and you have to be flexible. There's a quote by Bruce Lee out there that's like, be like water, be flexible. And water takes the shape of the container it's in, right? So you have to be flexible and be ready to change tactics. But at the same time, don't let that fear stop you. A lot of people make these excuses for never getting into real estate because they're afraid of this, they're afraid of the economy, they're afraid of coronavirus, they're afraid of not getting rent, they're afraid of not being able to evict a tenant, all these fears. But if you can't get past that fear, you're never going to be successful. I think that's the key here. And I completely agree with that. But what are you doing to prepare for this if it does happen? Obviously, I can retarget for usually other high quality tenants. So like thinking of like medical professionals, I'm also near a hospital. So I could retarget toward new grads, people who just started getting into their pharmacy or medicine, and they just got out and they need a place to rent because they have a high burden of student loans, especially like pharmacy loans and medical loans. They're usually in the like $100,000 or $200,000 range. So they're paying $2,000, $3,000 payment toward those loans every month. They're not going to be able to purchase a property right away. So most of them will be renting. And those are the types of tenants I would retarget towards. When I think about the rent by the room strategy, the cash flow numbers seem to always outperform traditional rental strategies. But one of the few downsides that I could think of is the increased effort it must take to manage tenants individually. I think you mentioned across four properties, you have 18 tenants. So rather than just by the unit, 
It reminds me a bit of Airbnb, and the returns tend to be better, but it takes a lot more work. Of course, it's not the same as Airbnb because Airbnb is short term with tenants turning over frequently, whereas rent by the room is generally longer term. But I draw a few parallels in terms of the effort required as the property owner. How are you able to manage the level of work required to manage four single family rent by the room properties while working a demanding full time job as a pharmacist? So I do self manage my properties. The answer to your question is twofold. One, you have to make sure you find high quality tenants. And that's what the point of the prime method is. That's why I teach my clients as well the prime method to find high quality tenants. The second thing is tenant empowerment. So tenant empowerment means basically assigning specific responsibilities to tenants to help take care of the house. I want you guys to reframe this instead of saying, oh, I have 18 problems problems I might have to solve, reframe it to saying, I have 18 little helpers that might be able to help around the house, help manage the property and take care of things. Because it's really about connecting with those tenants and having them take on those roles and help you out when things come up on the house. It's also having systems in place. So I have a team in place, like I have a team of contractors that I can go to for if the toilet breaks down, there's a more major repair that needs to be made. I just forward any problems to them and then they take care of it. They have the code to enter into the house. They can do their work. They can go and then send me a bill and then I'll send them a check. And it's completely hands-off, automated. The last time I was actually down at one of my properties was in August of last year of 2019. So yeah, you can tell the importance of systems in this whole process. It really changes the whole real estate investing for people. It sounds like really having good quality tenants is the staple to this strategy and also specifically your process. I mean, everybody wants to have good tenants, right? I want to have good tenants in my properties and they're not student rentals. They're just traditional rentals, but I still want to have good quality tenants. But it sounds like with how much empowerment you give your tenants, which I do myself as well, it sounds like you really need to have those high quality tenants. Exactly. Like I said, it's two parts, finding the high quality tenants and then managing them using empowerment. So when you're actually looking for properties, what are some of the major characteristics of a property that you're looking for when searching for properties that might suit the rent by the room strategy? And how are these types of properties different than traditional rental properties? I actually look for cookie cutter properties like three bed, two baths. Most properties are around three bed, two baths. But I also look for that value add. So is there an extra bedroom, like an extra family room or a living room that I can turn into a bedroom? Or can I split the large living room in half using some drywall and turn part of that into an extra bedroom? Because every bedroom I can add is an extra $620 per month I'll be getting a rent. I look for properties that are very close to campus, usually a five-minute walk distance from campus if possible, because the closer it is, the higher rates I could charge because on-campus housing, they charge $1,200 per month and the student has to pay for a meal plan. I'm only charging $620 per month average and they have more privacy compared to college dormitories. They have a lot more space and some of them are actually even closer to their classes than the on-campus houses. So it's really a great market. You can see this is what I call a blue ocean market where it's like untapped potential. I have 18 tenants out of the total 5,200 tenants enrolled in the college campus. And that's only like 0.3% of the total number of tenants I could be having. 
And so when you're talking about adding extra bedrooms, it sounds like you know that if you add a bedroom, you could get about $620 for that bedroom. So are you doing a calculation to say, okay, if I spend $20,000 to add an addition onto this property and get an extra bedroom at $620 a month, and it costs me $20,000, that's a 37% return for the year. Are you doing that type of calculation to see if it's worthwhile? So you want to know your break-even point when you do that, exactly like that. I actually, rather instead of adding additions to the property, I rather either repurpose an existing room or I would like to divide a room in half and make half of it a new bedroom. Because those are a lot cheaper additions than actually adding pouring foundation and adding a new addition to the property. It's a lot simpler. So after you had... We talked about those issues at the beginning of the show that you had with your first property cost you over 30,000 bucks. That clearly didn't stop you because you've gone on to do three more deals after that. So why didn't those issues stop you? Why didn't losing almost $30,000 or over $30,000 scare you away from real estate? How did you overcome that? This comes back to the mindset. Having a big why is very important. So why are you guys doing this? For me, the moment was when I had my first job as a hospital pharmacist, I came in and I think the first week or so I was asking one of the senior pharmacists next to me, I was like, oh, what do you like about your job? What do you like about working here? And he said, to be honest, and he was like in his 60s, right? He was like, to be honest, I will quit a long time ago. I'm just here to make my paycheck and get my benefits. I was like, man, that struck a chord with me, right? This could be me if I continued down the line. I do love my job, but I don't want to be for or have to be working until I'm 60 or 65 years old. And real estate provides that freedom to be able to live life on your own terms, be able to do what you want, when you want, where you want, with whomever you want to do it with. Because once that passive income pays and covers all of your expenses, you achieved financial freedom. And so having that big why and that strong goal is what kept me going, even though I was like, I'm not, after that first property, I was like, I'm not sure if I'm good at this. I'm not sure if I'll be a successful real estate investor because I lost a ton of money on this first deal. But it's that big why that really keeps you going. And you're like, especially for me, I was like, hey, my grandpa did it. He was able to make it work. I can make it work too if I, I just keep at it. So I just kept at it. I focused on it. I did one model. I copied it. I repeated that same process and then I scaled it. And that's why I'm where I am today, having a six-figure rental income just coming from my properties as passive income. Before you even did that first deal, what were some of the limiting beliefs that you had? And how did you overcome those? This really goes deep into mindset. I would say one of the big things was identity. So I didn't identify as a successful real estate investor when I started. Obviously, I, I identified as a struggling real estate investor, as the underdog. But there's something, a concept out there called be, do, have. So a lot of us, we start from the have. We want to have this. And so we do things to become that person. But instead, it's the opposite. You should become that person first. Act as if you were that successful real estate investor. What would a successful real estate investor do if they were in my position? Oh, they probably wouldn't be scared off by losing $30,000 on their first deal, right? They would probably still keep that property, hold it, let it appreciate over time, figure out how to make profits, cut expenses, and then they would uh, go from there. And so that was a major shift for me is stepping into that role, stepping into that identity of a successful real estate investor. And that's really part of what led to uh, me being able to create this system and be able to scale so quickly. 
So tell us a little bit more about your journey from that one property to where you're at now with the four properties. What were the other types of properties like? How similar were they to your first one? And how did you go about all of them? Actually, I do pretty much look for a very similar type property, three bed, two bath, and I convert them all into either four bed or five bed, two bath. And then they're all pretty close to campus. As I purchase each property each year, I was able to kind of tweak things a little bit. I figured out how can I do this in a more cost-efficient manner? How can I cut expenses? There's something I call preventative maintenance I started doing. Preventative maintenance is kind of putting down some renovations to prevent larger, more expensive repairs down the line. The easiest example you can see from this conversation is the sewage line inspection. So just doing that inspection on the early phases, I could kind of negotiate the deal and get that line replaced before it becomes an emergency. One thing that I think is super important, whether it be real estate, whether it be mindset, I also host another podcast that's all about stock investing and personal finance. So whether it's any of those topics, even entrepreneurship, I think setting expectations is huge. I think if you have the wrong expectations going into anything and it turns out to be different than what you expected, I think you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be unhappy no matter how good the outcome is if you expected it to be better. So how has real estate investing been different than what you expected before you became an investor? What has been better about it than you expected? Maybe what's been worse about it? I would say the biggest expectation was I thought it was going to be pretty simple. I thought I was just going to buy a property, rent it out to college students, do what my friend did, and it would be just that simple. I didn't realize that there are so many problems that could come up with house in terms of maintenance, especially like older houses. So I learned throughout the years how to vet better deals where this is in a much better shape, better condition. These are the things that I can do to prevent major repairs down the line. Things like even taking out grass, putting in bark to save on the water bill, putting in LED lights to save on the energy bill. And I really created this system in place so I could make profit, like guaranteed profit on each rental because I knew how to run my numbers. I practiced at it. I even created like a deal analysis calculator for this. And so you know, now I know as an experienced investor what exactly it takes to create that profit. So where do you see yourself going from here as a real estate investor? Do you plan on continuing to scale the student rental rent by the room strategy? Do you plan on going into traditional rentals, maybe out of state or some syndications or just bigger deals in general? Where do you think you're going to go with your portfolio? That's always a great question because there's this debate whether you should just leverage like crazy or you should pay off the rentals and have that peace of mind and be able to have that maximum cash flow. For me, I kind of have this choice where I either pay off my rentals right now, and I could actually do that in the next three years or so by reinvesting the huge amount of cash flow that I'm getting. And of course, reinvesting like W-2 income and all of that, I could be able to pay that off within three years. So I would be around 31 at the time, and I would retire with that six-figure income just coming in. So that's one choice. The other choice is, of course, to leverage like crazy I could use the equity on my existing property, take out something called a HELOC. I actually have a HELOC already. It's called a home equity line of credit. Basically, it's like a credit card. You take out the equity on the property to put a down payment on another property, like a fifth, sixth, or seventh property. So I'm kind of in between at this stage. If the market does crash, of course, I'll be leveraging like crazy, taking out the equity, putting on four, fifth, sixth property. But I could also, I'm at the stage where, hey, I can pay it off in three years, no biggie, 
and just retire. It's nice having that choice. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the show today. For those listening who want to connect with you, where's the best place for them to go? I have a free PDF for people just trying to get started in real estate investing. And I actually go through my specific method of rent by the room, student housing, and provide a lot of great strategic information for you guys. And you can get that on my homepage at www.newbierealestateinvesting.com. That's www.newbierealestateinvesting.com. And newbie is spelled N-E-W-B-I-E. Awesome. I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes so anybody listening today that wants to check it out can click the link below in your favorite podcast player to go get that free PDF and check out Ryan's website. Ryan, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the show, Robert. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.